Hi, welcome to the Brooks Online uh, Gathering. My name is Muchi Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Super excited, honored that you would connect with us in this way as a body. If this is your first time, especially, uh, there's a link in the chat wherever you're engaging with us from that we would love for you to click on and then fill out the information so that we could get connected with you, not just in this moment, but beyond it. Additionally, there's not just a link uh, there that's present, but there's also people, people who are dropping lines, they're sharing things that are resonating with them throughout the course of our online um, gathering. And we would love for you to do the same. Drop a line, make yourself known in this moment together. We are in the middle of this series called Words I Never Said. Uh, it's a series of reflections uh, that have happened through the course of my sabbatical, uh, through the course of my devotional time with, with Jesus over the last five weeks. But honestly, like I said, they really have transcended the last five weeks. They've really been for the last year plus. They've just been crystallizing all the more in the season that we find ourselves in, which is why even last week we talked about the reality of seasons and how some we choose and some choose us. But regardless, we have the privilege and the opportunity to allow the weight of eternity, the then and there, to bear on our life and our seasons in the here and now. This week, uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of truth, an ode to truth, if you will. But the way that we're going to examine, unpack this idea is a little bit different. Rather than just a monologue or a typical sermon, we're actually going to engage in a guided discussion that I was able to have with a friend of mine, Professor, tremendous thinker, Dr. Glenn Kreider, I mean, he's such a critical thinker, applying truth well to the various areas of life, but he also possesses a sincere heart of humility that enables him to continuously learn, even though he's a beast. He's currently serving as an acting chair for the Department of Theological Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater. Additionally, he serves as an editor-in-chief for the theological journal Biblioteca Sacra. The span of his interests within the theological space uh, go from writings on Jonathan Edwards to writing within popular culture. He's been married to the love of his life for so long, but it feels like it was just yesterday. They have two grown children and one amazing granddaughter, Marlo Grace. The conversation that we were able to have was very enriching for my soul, and I know that it would be as well for yours. And so we are actually going to have an abbreviated form of that dialogue, uh, but we are going to release the extended form of that dialogue later on today. So check your emails, follow us on social so that you can get that. Grab a cup of coffee, sit with us as we're refreshed in this time. Dr. Kreider, and thank you so much for giving up your time um, to participate in this guided discussion and to lead us uh, in, in a way that, that honestly is, is necessary, not just in this moment in time, um, but beyond it, man. And man, just, yeah, man, thank you, Dr. Kreider. Looking forward to the, the conversation. Thank you. This will be fun. <laughs> and so essentially, like, like you saw in the introductory video, um, we want to interact with this concept, this idea that we think is simple yet necessary. 
and it's truth. How do we come to understand something to be true? How do we then interact with something that we claim to be true? And then how do we apply said truth? And part of the reason is we just, it just feels like we're in a cultural moment where we're more casual or cavalier with information. Um, and so we make claims that aren't true. Um, and then we even weaponize that which is true. Um, and so we just want to deal with all of that, man. And so um, the form of this, again, will be we're just going to wrestle with some key ideas. We'll have some critical questions and then um, some closing thoughts um, from the man on Mount Rushmore. And so um, the first key idea, um, Kreider, that we would love for you to just help us work through, think about, interact with is, man, can you, can you just help us construct a framework and a working definition for truth? Um, we as Christians talk a lot about truth, um, and but it's not just Christians. The, the question of truth is a really important one. Mm. And there are all kinds of ways that the philosophers have helped us understand what truth is. Uh, pretty commonly, people talk about a correspondence view of truth, that if something is true if it corresponds to reality, mm. uh, which is a, a definition of truth that works really well for propositions. So, for example, if the scripture says that God is love, that proposition would be true if, in, in fact, God is love. Uh, but what do we do with non-propositional statements like poetry, like um, uh, picturesque language? Like Nobody reads the prophet who says the rivers clap their hands and think that the rivers actually have hands and clap them. We all recognize that that's true in a different sense. The Gospels tell us that Jesus walked on water. That's true because he actually, this, this human being actually walked on top of the water. But when he tells us about a, a, about a man who's beaten and left for dead on the road from Jer Jericho to Jerusalem, that didn't, that's not true in the same way. That didn't happen. That's a made-up story that's true in the context of that made-up storiness, but it's not true in the same way that the, the narrative of Jesus' life is true. So that was, we wrestle with the scriptures, and as Christians, we believe that the scripture is God's word to us. It's true in what it affirms. Uh, we're, we're, we wrestle with a variety of ways we would understand the, the truth of scripture. And then we have sayings like, Jesus claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a proposition. That is true if, in fact, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But that Jesus is the truth is not a proposition. That's a proposition about the reality of who he actually is. Uh, so, And then we've got some other really interesting sayings of Jesus, where Jesus says, for example, in John 5, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true, which is kind of shocking. If taken at face value and removed from the context. Those are the kinds of questions that, that have kept me in a pursuit of trying to figure out how to understand what truth actually is. What, I, what we often hear is the claim, for example, that every word in the Bible is true. That's actually not true. 
<laughs> because words need some context. Words have mm. possible meaning. At the smallest, the, the, the most simple unit of thought, it's not a word. I mean, if I use the word chair, uh, there are multiple ways that word chair could be understood. I'm, I'm acting chair of my department today. I'm sitting in a chair. Those are two different definitions of truth. So we need, we need context to actually know whether, whether a saying is true or not. A couple years ago, I read uh, an article by Nick Moldersdorf, who for years was a professor of philosophy at Yale Divinity School. He taught at uh, Calvin College before that. I think he's back in Calvin now in his uh, retirement, um, who proposed a definition of truth that, that for me, removed all kinds of extraneous and confusing mm. things and provided a pretty simple definition. He proposed that truth has to be understood as that which measures up. What me that it measures up to a standard. That in order to answer the question, what is truth, we need to understand or to have some agreement on what the context is and what the standard is. So in the illustrations, in those illustrations that I used are his illustrations. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the standard is the, um, the character of God, that, uh, that from the very beginning, the scriptures have affirmed that God is truth, that what he, what he affirms is true. So what Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the way to God, but he's claiming more than that when he says, I am the truth, that, that's a claim to be divine. And then he says, I am the life. And from the very beginning of the biblical story, because all the way back to Genesis 1, that life is from God. God is the source of life. So Jesus is not simply the way to God. He is truth and life itself. And that's true, whether or not he ever says or does anything. He is the truth even before he is incarnate. So the second person in the Godhead, because he is God, is truth. When he becomes human, when he adds humanity to his deity, when he becomes Jesus of Nazareth, he, he doesn't cease to be the truth. Everything he says is true. But again, it's not true in the same way. So when, when he declares... Um, they will know you are my followers by your love for one another because God is love. That's true in a different sense in the story about the man beaten on the road to Jericho. Um, when he says, if I testify by myself, my testimony is not true, he's talking about being in a court of law, which is why in John 5, he cites several other um, testimonies. He cites John, who testified to him. He cites the Father. Besides the spirit, so now he has several witnesses in addition to himself, as if he needs them. But he actually mm. does need them if he's on trial in a court of law. But in John eight, he makes the opposite point that even if I'm the only one who testifies testifies about myself, my testimony is true because it corresponds to who to who I am. It is um, it is the reality of who I am. We, we recognize, we, and we apply this standard in a variety of ways. So there is true coffee and there is false coffee. There is some. Hey, standard. come on. There is some standard. 
to which coffee measures up. And different people, this is part of the problem there, <clears throat> different people would have a different standard. I like my coffee dark and bold. Because it's real coffee. Because it's really true coffee. coffee. Um, I have a good friend who's a barista who likes his coffee light and mild. I think that's not true coffee. So his standard of true coffee is different from my standard of true coffee. So that part of the real challenge for us is once we have a definition of truth, which is, I think, really helpful, we, we, we then have to have some agreed upon standard by which we measure this. So really having an understanding of, of the context by which we measure truth is and is and I and every and when I say this, it sounds like I'm making the question more difficult than it actually is, but I don't think that's true. I I think we we all know deep down inside, and I think this is really true for Christians. We know deep down inside that this question is much more complex than to be able to provide just a really short, succinct what we call a Sunday school answer. Yes. Um, and I think we're, I, I, I think this question is so incredibly important to us because it's no longer possible to ignore the reality of that world. Uh, and we've got to wrestle with that tension. So the very, the, the more simplistic and the even trite, what is true coffee there, there can be differences of opinion. But what is the true thing to do here? What is the best thing to do in this circumstance? Mm. And how do, we, how do we wrestle with those questions? My brother, you preach it, preach it. Like, so I love it because what, what you've done is you've invited us to be in this atmosphere, this space, where we don't, and I think you said this to, before, I um, remember you saying in a class, which is that the fool loves law, <laughs> you know, um, but that we are called to be fools, but to live wisely, which means to exist in tension. Um, and so the, the pursuit of wisdom, the, the expression of wisdom is almost a conformity to truth, which is often held in tension, which I think you, you've brought out which to me frames the rest of some of these critical questions. So like, so let me give you an example, right? Based on what you've said, even identified, um, we are in a very unique moment where it feels like the world around us is raging, the world inside us is raging, and we're just trying to hold on to what may be solid ground that we could trust, and it can move us forward in a way that's noble, beautiful, and good. And then if you're a Christian, it can move us forward in the glory of God, right? And so in this raging space, what I've been witnessing is um, a lot of deconstruction and reconstruction, right? So it's like the deconstructing and reconstructing of ideas, a lot of which have been tied to people who have weaponized information and weaponized truth. Um, some have been tied to the fact that we come to know something to be true by a variety of ways. Some of that is passive. It's just the environment that we've been brought up in. So, And some other people 
uh, it's not just passive understanding, it's active pursuit. All that to say, we're in this space of radical reconstruction and deconstruction where truth is being held in tension. So I just want to ask some critical questions in light of that space where it feels like we're on a journey. <laughs> and for our church, uh, it's a journey that's taken us through a lot of different experiences. So the first up would be this. What is the role of our inner voice in understanding and interpreting truth? Culture, cultures change more rapidly than ever in human history. Amen. And, when I, and when I say that, I feel like I need to explain. This is not some old guy talking about the, the old days. I mean, it's, it's a verifiable fact that our American culture, and there is no such thing as a monolithic American culture, so what's happening in Dallas is, is different than what's in Miami, which is different than in Portland or Minneapolis. I mean, we're a multicultural country, but the world is changing rapidly, and it's like the, the, it's, it's so obvious that nobody argues this point today that we're five months into this pandemic, and then you throw on top of that the the, uh, the social tensions. Um, I mean, racism is not some new thing, um, but what's happening in the, the the culture, what's happening in the streets, is it's also really not a new thing. But it's relatively new compared to where we were five months ago. Mm -hmm. George Floyd's death changed. Um, things for us, change perceptions for us, which, is a, which might be too provocative of an illustration. Maybe I'll leave that one there. I don't think it's too provocative. I think it's powerful because I do think it pulled what seemed to be hidden as it relates to supremacy and the expressions thereof right to the surface. So it's a visceral shock for so many people and a tra re-traumatizing for others, but go ahead. Yeah, and yeah, thank you. What I intended, what, uh, so I'm going to use it as an illustration here. Um, that event is read differently, and my social media feed is full of as many possible readings as maybe not as many as there could be. But so that uh, there's a particular narrative. If one is a defender of the police, no matter what, mm -hmm. that narrative that that event is read differently than a person who has had negative experiences with the police and is inclined to not give policemen the, the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> which is just so hard for me even to conceive that watching a man put his knee on the neck of another human being isn't enough to say this is just wrong. But, but we've got this, but he was a criminal. And like, that, this, that, it, that, that, that the event is read differently. Um, and what makes this a, an illustration for us, it's much more than an illustration. It's, it's a reality. But it functions here to, to let us see in just in 10 minutes um, how our view of reality is shaped by our perspective of reality. Mm. And so how does the inner voice... Um, impact this year so I, I say two things um one is most christians acknowledge that the 
the Spirit of God in us is at work in us, and that that the Spirit who He has given to us guides us into truth and is a voice worth listening to. I would also say that the same thing is true of those who are not Christians. I, I think there is deeply embedded in all human beings created in the image of God, and that all human beings are created in the image yes. of God. Human dignity and a and vestiges of this relationship to God. We're, we're as, as Augustine said, we're all seeking for something that only God can fill. Whereas Shaman Rushdie put it, we're looking to fill a God-shaped hole, um, which is interesting because <laughs> Rushdie is not writing from a perspective of a Christian. That there is something that draws us toward God. There is this vestige of our original relationship with that creator, but we're all fallen and broken too. And that sometimes our inner voice, or what sometimes is called a conscience, has mm. been seared yes. um, and hasn't been nurtured really well. So that the second thing I would say is, as my father-in-law used to say, um, trust and verify. Yeah. Uh, investigate before you invest. Um, Test. I mean, Paul tells us that. Test the spirits. He tells us to test ourselves, whether we're in the faith. That we actually do need one another. And the real challenge for us in a in the current world is that we need to hear the voices of people whose perspectives we find deeply offensive. Otherwise, we perpetuate the problem of living in an echo chamber mm. surrounded by people who reinforce what we know to be true. And you and I know, we all, we all, those of us who spend any time on social media, know this characterizes much of what happens out there, that people will post things they want to believe without any verification that it's true or not because it conforms to their interpretation of reality or because somebody they trusted, somebody they are following, thinks, uh, agrees with it, so it, it must make it true. Uh, so, I mean, back to your question, uh, I do think we listen to the voice of the Spirit in us, and we listen to the voice of the Spirit in us, whether we are, uh, let me rephrase that. I think we listen to that inner voice. It's the voice of the Spirit for believers. It's vestiges of our original creation for non-believers. We listen to that voice, but we also need to verify and evaluate it by by the truth, uh, by the scripture, if it's an issue that the scripture addresses, if it's an issue the scripture speaks to. Uh, but there are, I mean, we know this, there are a lot of issues to which the scripture does not speak, or it doesn't address directly. And there's no Bible verse that tells you that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. 
It would solve all the problems in the world, by the way, if there was. There, well, it would solve one set. Uh, there's also no Bible verse that tells us uh, what our position ought to be on any number of issues. So, I mean, most of the social issues we rec- we wrestle with today, I mean, the question, issues of justice. So, so you, <laughs> the law of Moses actually does have real clear. I'm going to open another can of worms. Uh, the, the, law, so I, I'm the, the law of Moses does actually regulate practices that we today, most of us, find deeply problematic and horrific and evil. So uh, the law of Moses regulates the, the, the practice of slavery. It doesn't forbid slavery. It regulates it. So how do we apply those kind of things today? So I just, I just wonder... Um, one of the ways that, the, that slavery under the law of Moses was regulated was that after seven years, in the seventh year, the slave was set free. So perpetual generation after generation chattel slavery is forbidden by the law of Moses. Exactly. So how do we apply that? Um, and, so, and the law of Moses also requires there be not simply repayments, if you steal from someone, but repayment with um, um, additional additional payments, so four times. Does that have anything to say about reparations? Like, like, how do we wrestle? Was that a question? Was that a question? <laughs> I was, I was, I was I, okay, because I, I think it does, especially with Luke, Rest, gospel restitution. See, I think it does too. But let me tell you what people who look like me hear when the R word is used. We hear, you're going to take our money from us. And that's not just. That's not fair. That's, that's not what most people mean by restitution. They're not talking about taking money from me to give to you. Um but somehow to recognize the um, the long-term benefits that have come to people who look like me that you don't have. Yeah. So I would, I would, I would. First of all, there's a lot of what you said there. I think is is super rich. And pull out some nuggets. Um, before I pull out some nuggets, let me affirm that I do think that you are one of those pe- people who are leading the way forward. And I think part of the reason why you are that way is not just the humility that you possess, but the thoughtfulness that you live out of. And so to me, even in the context of the the larger conversation around truth, like it's one thing to talk about something. It's another thing to think well about what you're talking about. Um, And oftentimes it seems as if we do um, the, the first and not the latter. We talk more than we think well. Um, and so for me, I think that you're very thoughtful and how man, we should be thinking about these things. So example, like truth is messy. <laughs> the pursuit of it is messy. Like, and it is almost selfish and foolish to try and strip apart the messy dynamics of it, which is what we do. Going back to what you said at the beginning, like in this almost this pursuit for a litany of absolutes 
we try to remove the messiness of real life and how we have to engage with truth in the context of real stories, not just propositions or you know, concepts. Uh, but then the other piece, yo, bro, bro like I'm, I'm over here, like my mind is pinging, where just really, again, the, the inner voice and knowing for, for the Christian, that's the spirit of God, like bearing weight on that. But there are vestiges of, of God's voice in the hearts of all people because the Imago Dei. Um, and, and being aware of that. But you said something that I thought was, was, was real simple but profound, and it was about investigating those things, testing those things, which to me necessitates community. So it's almost like the, the pursuit of truth isn't just messy, but it's a communal project, right? So like when you said we need all of these voices, even the ones that we disagree with, that, that rubs me because I know it to be true. But my immediate response is, but your voice is diminished because you're a lame and because it isn't information that is wired towards help. It feels like it's information trying to, to harm. And so like there's something that's in me that becomes adverse to what it feels like. You're actually not trying to move forward with me. You're trying to hurt me and harm me. Nevertheless, like I need to be critically aware of what you're saying. This voice will help, whether it's helping through refining by saying, you know what, here are all the problems with it. And so the pursuit of truth isn't just messy, it's inherently communal, which to me is, is profound. But there's, there's also that other piece about just what you were talking about, which is like the, the scriptures, how they speak um, about us to us, but they weren't necessarily always written like, with us in my immediate context because of some of the cultural dynamics. And so even some of the slavery conversation, like we project chattel slavery into the law of Moses, when it's like, this is a different context. And what you said, he forbade, there was a clear forbidding of man stealing. Like that's not, which is the essence of chattel slavery and a transatlantic slave trade where people were ripped from their context, treated as property, and then used to fill a system, which is not what the scripture speaks to. And so there's all of these spaces that we're forced to have to live in tension, and that takes time and that's hard. A um, few more questions, and it's really attached to that last part. With some of us, like, so I didn't grow up necessarily in a Christian home, like, you know what I mean? Um, even though in Texas, everybody's a Christian, everybody's a Christian, so there it is with it. But I didn't, I didn't grow up in that space. Um, but some people did. And even some of us who have been Christian for a significant amount of time, I feel like there's a reckoning. If you've been Christian longer than 10 years, there's that, like you, that equilibrium. There's just a weirdness right now. Do I still want to do this thing, if you will? Um, and it feels like there's this massive unlearning of, of information, right? So how, like, give, give me one thing that we should consider in the process of, affirming what is true that we may have learned and unlearning um, what is not true. And the context of that specifically is people that have said the Bible says this or tried to proof text their way to X, Y, and Z. Um, and, but really it's more cultural than scriptural in nature. So I don't know if you could sift the question in that, but essentially it's just give us one thing that we should consider in the larger process of affirming what is true and unlearning what isn't. 
I think the scriptures are much more concerned about how than what. And that what we learn from watching God in the history of the work of redemption is that God doesn't always respond the same way. One of my colleagues loves to say that God is too creative to do the same thing the same way more than once. Uh, I say, okay, I'll, get, I'll grant you that. But I say in response to that, that God is so uncreative that he always responds the same way in every circumstance. And we're not saying two different things, I don't think. What we're actually affirming is that God, God's what changes, but the how is constant and is consistent. That you can trust a good God to do what is good. Mm. Uh, when you, so when you come across something in the scripture that seems to attribute evil to a good God, we say, nope, that can't be true because God is good all the time. All the time he is good. <clears throat> so we need to do the hard work of how do, we, how do we interpret this biblical language in a way which fits into the whole of what we know about God <clears throat> and the way that God works. That what you called proof texting, well, the Bible says, is is what I learned. It's a way to use the Bible. Actually, you know, I I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a Christian community that taught me the stories of the Bible, and I'm grateful for that. But what I also learned was how to read the stories of the Bible that I now need to unlearn. And there's something really nice about learning those stories. But those stories were always morality tales. They were always, this is, the lesson is be a good boy and good things will happen. If you disobey, God will get mad and kill you. That's karma. That's not, that's mm. not grace. That's, not, that's the law of sowing and reaping. Not to mention the fact that I don't think those stories actually say that at all. That, so, for example, the flood narrative. I was taught this is what happens when God gets really, really angry at sinners. That's not in the text. This is what happens when God's heart is broken by the violence he sees in the world around him. That's a game changer. Yeah. I read that in the, in the text. We tried to practice what the, what the Bible says. So we, we actually took literally the Bible. When the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss, that's what we did. Oh, we do it in Miami. We didn't get it for the Bible, though. That was, that's all culture, baby. So it is cultural. That's see. That's exactly the the point. But see, the cultural thing for us, we didn't actually greet one another. You greet men greeted men, and women greeted women. Mm. And then along came this guy who said, "It says one another. It doesn't say greet men, greet women. It says greet one another." And he tried to kiss the ladies. And pretty quickly, we learned that that's not what the Bible means. So this is, this is my question, and, and this, this, this is a real honest question. I don't know any longer how to answer that question. Mm. When do I do what the Bible tells me to do, or when is it cultural? So we all know, in, in, in Texas we know, 
that greet one another with a holy kiss means shake a hand. We're all actually all kind of looking forward to the day when we go back to doing that again. So uh, on the other hand, we know when the Bible speaks about another issue, um, like women head coverings in First Corinthians 11, that's cultural. Well, everything's cultural. Everything is cultural. So how do we transition from this cultural setting to this cultural setting? And again, I, I, I'm going I'm to end that section where I started. I think the Bible is much more concerned about the, the how than the what. I don't mean by that that you can do whatever you want. That's antinomianism, libertinism. What I mean is that rules always have exceptions. That's why fools love rules. They don't have to think about it. They don't need wisdom. They just do what the law says. Over and over again, Jesus breaks the laws to demonstrate that the laws were not the thing. Obedience is not the thing. Caring for people is the thing. That Jesus is reinterpreting and reapplying the Mosaic legal system. And he actually takes this then and he boils it down. This 613 laws, all of these interpretations of those laws, and he boils it down to one. Love God and love others. If you love God, you fulfill the law and the prophets. If you do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, you fulfill the law and the prophets. Paul says the same thing. John says the same thing. That, that it's love for others, which is the most important thing. Maybe truth means loving one another well. Maybe so I teach at a seminary that is the slogan, teach truth, love well. Maybe we could flip it and teach love, truth well. And that maybe love and truth are not two different things, but they actually come together really well. But and when I hear myself say all of that, say, and, but justice has to be part of that conversation too. And mercy and grace and... Greater. Can I, can I pull out a thought to land us? Absolutely. Like, so full circle, that which measures up. And this is just me just thinking out loud, right? Based on what you just said at the end. And Jesus, not just making propositions, but he, he himself is claiming the space of standard so it's like the conformity to truth will always or should always move us towards a life that images jesus if you will um which means that it's this progressive i love that on the road to kingdom come it's this progressive move forward until what the scriptures tell us will be like him right and i think that just that just hit me in a, in a different way um, as you were talking because this to me raises the bar of responsibility for the people of God as people who love and live lives that are true, right? Lives that exist in that tension well, lives that don't give up even though we. <laughs> We, we want to, you know, um, mm -hmm. and that, and that just, that's just, I don't know. It just, it just hit me differently because, because personally I feel like at times, like, especially in this space, there's this extremes of public propaganda that we could 
give into QAnon, which is, I mean, all of it, right? But then it's not just this public propaganda that we as Christians can give into. There's this personal distortion we give into where we just slander, we gossip, we just don't handle the truth well in our everyday lives. And maybe, maybe it's not just receiving more information, but maybe it's reframing how we think and reorienting wholesale around the pursuit of Jesus. And by doing so, we'll actually grow in the truth. But going back to what you brought out earlier and then again, that pursuit isn't inherently individual, right? It's not just this individualistic, but it's, it really is a communal, like we, I love that, around the table doing theology together, which is doing the work of knowing who God is. Carter, could you just give us um, something to take away, man? Mm. You've said in the past that faith seeks understanding, not the other way around, um, which I just think is critical. And so maybe something along that, but can you just give us, give us a closing charge, man? Let's take one other thing first, and, and that is in a, an increasingly polarized and volatile world where people have access to media like never before, and we have the ability to communicate our ideas like never before. Um, this is a really simple thing of asking before I forward something or before I post something. Not simply is it true, as important as that is, but is it good? Is it helpful? Is it pure and holy? Does it encourage people? Or does it win an argument? Does it make a point? Does it directly or indirectly slander somebody created in the image of God? Uh, really, the really simple, and I, I, I'm sometimes better at that than others, um, as is true for all of us. So yeah, throughout history, people have begun with the epistemological conviction, how do we know that knowledge is not based in certainty, that knowledge is rooted in a perspective, a worldview. Um, it's, it begins with faith seeking understanding. This is true of Christians, it's true of non-Christians as well. The question has always been, are you believing the right things? Are you believing the truth? Are you, is your, uh, your worldview grounded in something that is true? So here's, here's my takeaway. It's that old story, the old song we learned in Sunday school, that the wise man builds his house upon a rock. And when the storms come, the house stands firm. But the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And I forget the, actually how the lyrics go. But I, but I do remember that when the flood comes, his house goes flat. We trust in a God who is alive. We trust in a God who is so wants to be known 
that he has given us his word, but he so wants to be known that he has left evidence of who he is all over the world that he has created, that that the heavens declare the glory of God, that God's uh, creation reveals his eternal power and divine nature plainly, clearly, it's seen, known, and understood. God is not far from us, that he, it's in him we live and move and have our being, as Paul says in Acts 17, that God, God so wants to be known, and that God loves the world that he has created. He loves the world that he has created to the extent that he sent his son to make all things new. So the son lived his life. He allowed himself to be murdered by his enemies. He came back from the dead, sent the Spirit, went to the Father, sent the Spirit, and promised to come back and make all things new. And I can't prove any part of that story. But that story is true. And that story is true because the God who began the story will complete the work that he has started. Amen. So we cling to that story. We cling to the hope of resurrection and the promise that one day God will make all things new. If you believe that story, then you're one of us. If you don't believe that story yet, I hope you will, uh, because this, this is the only story that makes sense of the world in which we live. And people in, in troubled times have always clinged to the hope that there must be more than this. Uh, the good news is there is something more than this, and that God one day will complete the work that he started. I don't know. This is good, man. Thank you again for not just giving of your time, um, giving of yourself to us in this moment, man. Um, for those uh, part of our family, uh, man, flood his email with thanks, follow him on social, blitz him, <laughs> you know, um, as we continue in this series, words I never said, just looking at the various reflections. Today was an ode to truth and Kreider. Uh, you have done that justice, man. Thanks again.